Welcome to the Marietta First United Methodist Church Podcast. Marietta First is a community of disciples dedicated to living and serving faithfully our local community of Marietta, Georgia, and around the world. We are glad you're here. It is our prayer that this podcast offers you hope and grace on your own journey of faith. You are invited to remain standing for the reading of our scripture this morning for those who are able. I will be reading from the book of Revelation, beginning with chapter 11, verse 19 through 12, 10. Hear these words. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. And then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to heaven, to God, and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,200 and 60 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The word of God for the people of God. And you may be seated. a nice light scripture passage for Senior Sunday. And you might be wondering, what on earth is she going to do with that? It was the same question I asked myself. But here we are. Here we are. We are in our fourth week of a sermon series, Revelation Visions of the Kingdom. And as you can see, as you've just heard, it's been a roller coaster ride. We never know where we're headed. And for those who might be joining us for the first time, or maybe for those who have missed a Sunday or two, let me offer you just a very brief recap, kind of set the stage, if you will. Revelation is a message to the prophet John given to him in a vision by the risen Christ. The intent of the vision is for him to share this with the churches that are listed in Revelation. 
It's a letter, surprisingly enough, that is intended for worship. It is meant to be read in worship. It contained within it, as you heard, are words of warning, but are also words of hope. Undoubtedly, Revelation was written during a time of crisis or an anticipation of some kind of crisis. At a time when the emperor cult was at an all-time high and people worshipped the emperor, bowing down to the emperor, calling the emperor Lord. And if you didn't do this, if you didn't bow down to the emperor and call the emperor Lord, well, there were consequences, as we've seen with John. As we've seen with John. John was placed in exile, and he was in Patmos, which is a small little island in the Aegean Sea. Preaching Jesus and calling him Lord was not too popular in the Roman Empire and would either get you banished like John or perhaps even martyred. Well, we know in our own personal experience, I'm sure, that Revelation is a controversial book. It's depicted in literature, poetry, art, and music, and each one offering its own interpretation. Great works such as Handel's Messiah, Dante's Inferno, Milton's Paradise Lost, and Michelangelo's Last Judgment were all influenced by this very, very colorful book. And even in modern culture, there are the popular novels. I call them novels, and dare I say fictional novels. I want to certainly preface fictional novels, trying to depict the end times. We hear words like the number of the beast, 666, the rapture, tribulation, the antichrist, all of which have permeated into our cultural mindset. Even if you don't go to church, pretty good chance you've heard some of these words. Revelation has captured the imagination of the Western world throughout the centuries. It's any wonder then that this was the very last book to be included in the New Testament canon. It has had mixed reviews for centuries. So if you're questioning it or you're wondering about it or you're saying, well, why is that there? You're not alone. You are in good company. It is often a misunderstood, misused, misinterpreted, and misrepresented book, or sometimes, as often is the case, this is placed on a dusty bookshelf and brought out occasionally, maybe for an All Saints Sunday, when we talk about the new heaven and the new earth. It's, it's a safer place, truly, to talk about that than to talk about what I just read. During this series, we've been looking at Revelation in cycles, and um, today we're in the fourth cycle. And there is, once again, a, just a slight turn. <laughs> um, well, really, it's more than a slight turn. It's quite jarring, really. And it begins the second half of Revelation and begins a new vision. And as we've seen with these visions, um, it's not linear. It's not from point A to point B to C. It's not the way we think about it. It's circular. And it ends up in ever-widening circles, as the poet Rilke often said. Time is a mixture here in Revelation of God's time, which is kairos, and human time, which is chronos. And it's easy to lose our footing in what this is. And today, as we've heard, we've entered a battlefield. Most of us would say that we've never been in battle. We've not picked up the weapons of a soldier and held it and looked and pointed at it and looked in the eyes 
of our enemy? Some of, some of us have. Some here have done that. But most of us haven't done that. But the battle in Revelation is a little bit different. It's a cosmic battle between good and evil. Something, I think, each one of us, no matter our age, knows something about. This battle is wrapped in metaphor upon metaphor, and it's actually a flashback. So it's time to put our seatbelts on because we're about to take some turns. I know you didn't come to church for a, a, a lesson and metaphor, but it'll help us understand the book. So we hear that it begins in heaven and we see the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represents the sacred chest containing the law that's placed in the Holy of Holies. So right away we begin with the covenant of God that God, of course, is always faithful. We hear this flashing of lightning and rumbling and thunder and earthquake and hail. Blah, 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 blah. You can imagine the sound of it is emphasizing the power of God. And then we see a woman, perhaps symbolizing Mary, the mother of Jesus. And maybe it's also representing both Israel and the church, because Israel will give birth to the Messiah and the church will be formed as a result of the Messiah. The 12 stars, always numbers, every number in Revelation matters, 12 representing completeness and fullness. So we have the 12 stars representing maybe the 12 tribes of Israel or maybe the 12 apostles. And then the woman cries out in birth pangs to give birth. The red dragon is the enemy of God and appears with seven heads and ten thorns. Now, again, numbers, numbers. So you have seven completeness, ten completeness, seven days, right? We have that in creation. Ten, ten commandments, ten plagues, completeness. Now, throughout the centuries, people have tried to identify exactly what each seven means, what each ten means. But for our case here today, it means completeness. The dragon sweeps down his tail. Perhaps he's sending his angels representing evil and pride and other things into the world. And the dragon is ready to devour the child the minute it is born. The woman gives birth the Christ, it's the Messiah, who will rule for all eternity. There's no getting around the Messiah ruling for all eternity. But before the dragon can get to that Christ child, he is snatched up and he is taken up to the throne, which is the center of revelation, and all the chaos surrounds the throne of Christ where God is present and the slain lamb stands. This is an entire cosmic scene. This snatching upward could possibly signify the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus up into heaven. Now, the woman is still there, and she flees into the wilderness, which is a place of refuge. Remember, the Israelites went into the, they went into the wilderness as a place of refuge from the Pharaoh. It also reminds us of how after Jesus was born, King Herod wanted to kill the baby, Jesus, and they went into Egypt for safety. 
We hear this number 1,260, some random number, and it represents distress. It's an incomplete number. And this battle breaks out in heaven. Of all places, the place where we think it ought to be the safest, a battle breaks out in heaven. What do we do with this? And Michael, the archangel, and his team of angels fight the dragon. Can you, can you see this drama in your head? Your imagination, where it's taking you? Hearing this message, imagine what the early church may have heard and why it has captured the imagination of Christians for centuries. Well, Michael and his angels defeat the dragon. And he's thrown down to earth. This ancient serpent that was first introduced to us in the Garden of Eden and is now called, first time we hear it, the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world has been defeated. This is a victorious battle in heaven. Satan is defeated three times in the book of Revelation. This is the first time. Remember, threes matter, or numbers matter. Threes, a completeness. It's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The devil cannot succeed, but he's been banished to the earth. It's important for us to remember that. For the early Christians, they would, they would have seen this as a battle with Rome and the emperor the persecution of Christians, those who did not bow down to Caesar as Lord. The emperor is the evil oppressor, is the red dragon, Satan, where the risen Christ is victorious. The imagery would not have frightened them, but it would have offered them hope. They would have been familiar with this apocalyptic language that is telling a story and revealing the word of Christ in metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. We know at the end of this battle that God wins. And that's the point of this message, that God wins no matter what. God will always win. And I think this is especially true, these words of hope, when you're facing perseverance, when you're facing difficulty, when you're wondering about what is going to happen next, as that early community certainly did. And they had threats of death. Professing Jesus as Lord would have put you in exile Put you in the dungeons, putting your life at risk. And if you've ever walked the catacombs of Rome, then you know that there were Christians who lost their lives for their faith. It's true, it seems. Hard, I think, to imagine that people would die for their faith in, in the world that we live in. Maybe in other parts of the world, but certainly not where we live. But I wonder if our sacrifice to the faith is slowly being chipped away. A little bit here, a little bit there, an inch here, an inch there. Hard to notice when the tip of the pencil has softened. It happens. Evil becomes more veiled when faith dims. I think we can all agree, I think, that there is both good and evil in the world. Though we might differ on maybe the perspectives of good and evil. I mean, evil, for example, maybe for some, and I think maybe for most of us, is these big structural things. We might point to the Inquisition. We might point to slavery. We might point to the Holocaust, to genocide, to apartheid, to stealing, to murder, to bribery, all those big things that we know about, evil. And we take these and we read about them and then we put them to the side because it does not apply to our life. 
It could be that evil is clothed in things that are a little bit more subtle. Maybe greed, maybe power. Its, it's building blocks might be as simple, as simple as this. An unkind word here, a little white lie there, a little gossip spread over here, a corner cut there, you know, just a little bit of me here. How is this evil? How is this evil? Well, one definition reads that evil is that which opposes the will of God. And after a while, these add up and we can find ourselves walking down a pretty slippery slope. John Wesley believed that evil was the result of human will. That we have free will and we have choices. Each one of us have choices. And we can choose good or we can choose harm. Sometimes, though, these waters get a little murky because sometimes we choose in between. Fred Craddock, the great preacher, sums up this by illustrating uh, an essay that was written by Thomas de Quincey in the 18th century, and it was, it was an essay on murder. And he says this, Once a man indulges in murder, there is no telling where he will go from there. Likely he will go into robbery, perhaps then drinking, on to Sabbath breaking perhaps, even procrastination. And once you start down this downward trip, you never know where you will land. There is many a man who can date his ruin from the murder from which he thought little of at the time. Self-will or God's will. And every day we make these choices. I know our students make these choices every day. Every day at school and with friends and at work, they're making choices, hundreds of choices. And I don't know what it's like to be a young person today. I don't know what it's like to be a young person today. I know that it's got to be extraordinarily difficult. I think about all the social media, all the expectations placed on you by friends and family, all of it, and, and I know it's got to be hard, and I admire you. I admire you. I admire your perseverance. I admire your courage. I admire your achievements. I admire that you have hope for the future. I admire that. Now, some of you here today might be struggling with your faith, might be struggling with the church. You might be hearing things from others that might tempt you to turn away. And when you get to college, you're just going to throw in the towel. I'm done. I would encourage you to keep working on it. To keep working on it. Don't give up. And for those who feel like your faith right now is as strong as it's ever been, hold on to it as tight as you can. Guard it with your life. Don't let anyone take it from you. We all struggle. It's the human condition. And in the church, we have examples of what good luck looks like. We know that. We know what God looks like. We shouldn't have to debate that. Go to Matthew 25. Parable of the goats and the sheep. I don't want to be a goat, do you? And Jesus' command to love God and to love neighbor 
We know the parable of the Good Samaritan. The trouble comes when we ask, who is our neighbor? Or what about the Ten Commandments? Most of the time we agree with them, right? Except for maybe those when they become a little gray, like the Sabbath, making idols. I mean, I I know I struggle with these. I struggle with these. Maybe you don't, but I do. I mean, oftentimes my Sabbath turns to work. And my idols, my idols become what others think of me. Or maybe thinking only about my own comforts and my own needs. No martyrdom, no catacombs. Not yet. But our battle is a little different than the battle that John is talking about. And I guess we can't ignore, we can't ignore that Satan was thrown down to earth. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. It's why scripture is important. It's why prayer is essential. Worship is essential. Because it reminds us of who we are. And that we're not alone. And that we're all part of this cosmic battle of good and evil and mixed in it. And we do need to be on our guard. But I think we also need to remember that Christ is victorious. And that God always wins. As United Methodists, a core element of our theology is in the three general rules which seem especially important today. Do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. And these are pretty wise words when you are in battle with the devil. I do want to say this um, as an aside. Um, Preparing for these sermons, I have used many books. I've done a lot of study. And my perspective is all only one. And so there are many perspectives on the book of Revelation out there. But as United Methodists, the way we look at Scripture is that Scripture is primary. We look at it through the lens of tradition, reason, and experience. And that's what informs us. And so I want to share that because you might be hearing different things about the book of Revelation. But I'm sharing it purely from my understanding of a Methodist and a Wesleyan perspective. I want to close, yes, I'm closing here, with a message to our graduates, which I think is befitting us all. Many years ago, it was discovered um, on Mother Teresa's wall in her her room in Calcutta, um, a series of sayings that was often attributed to her, but she didn't write them. They were actually... Um, a list that came from the author Kent Keith. And Keith called these sayings his paradoxical commandments. And at the heart of it is Jesus' command to love God and love one another. Keith also said that it's important to find meaning and purpose in our lives because that becomes the driving force for us is our purpose and our meaning. And so for him, he said from his own experience and what he saw, young people would go away to college, they would go away and they would want change and transformation to happen, and it wouldn't happen quickly enough. And so they would come back disillusioned, either giving in or giving up. And so he urged young people to stay true to their purpose in life and to continue to love as Christ did, doing good because it is of value. So he wrote these paradoxical commandments as guidelines for 
finding meaning in the face of adversity. And he wrote these when he was a sophomore in college. And I offer these to you this morning, this afternoon, with revisions. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the best you have anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never just between you and them anyway. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Marietta First United Methodist Church podcast. For more information about Marietta First United Methodist Church, we invite you to connect with us online at mariettafumc.org or on Facebook at Marietta FUMC.